Uh-oh, there's that bald guy again holding a stool in the air. What does this mean? Well, it means it is once again time to review the four legs of the stool that is the church, right? We've been doing this series called The Church Defined, and uh, we've been talking about how the church is uh, multifaceted, but we've been focusing on four specific things that are essential to the life of a healthy church. And so we talked about love, unity, worship, and ministry. Leg one, love. Leg two, uh, unity. Leg three, worship. And leg four, ministry. We're finally getting to leg four today, and we're going to be talking together about ministry, probably in a way that you haven't thought about it before. And so I want to encourage you um, to just pull up a chair, grab your Bibles, and get ready, because we finally come to this fourth leg of the stool, the, the leg that is about changing the world. Now, if you've been around Grace Fellowship at all, you probably know we have a slogan around here, loving God, loving people, and changing the world. And uh, this changing the world side of things is the part we're going to be talking about today. I was thinking this week back about, it seems as about 700 years ago, I was in high school. And uh, I remember the summer between my junior year and my senior year of high school, I was taking a bunch of AP classes my senior year, and when I signed up for those classes, I did not know they were going to give us summer homework assignments. Now, I am not a fan of summer homework assignments, but I had one especially difficult one. I was going to be taking AP Spanish 4, and so they told us that we had to, over the summer, read the novel Don Quixote in Spanish and write our responses in Spanish. And I got about two chapters into that book in Spanish and realized I understood about 10% of what I had read. I knew I was going to be in deep trouble by the time I got back to school. And I was so glad at the first day of school, I got back there and found out everybody else was as dumb as I was. And nobody got that book read because it was just over our heads. And I hated it because my Spanish was good enough to get by, but it was not good enough to pull off the assignment that I had been given. So if we're going to be as a church about loving God, loving people, and changing the world, that's an assignment from God. And there's nothing like an assignment that you know you are not qualified for. When you look at that, loving God, loving people, changing the world, the first two seem doable, right? I mean, we just sang about how great God is, and and loving God is not that hard. But then you get to loving people, and it's like, well, loving people is a little bit harder than loving God. But even that, we can do by the power of God uh, loving people through us. But then when you look at that third thing, changing the world, you think, That's got to be hyperbole, right? I mean, nobody is really expecting me to change the world given my talent, my ability, my resources, my character. And I'm afraid that a lot of us as Christians, we see an assignment from God like changing the world and we just don't think we're qualified for it. But you know, those summer assignments help me prepare for the Christian life. Because I've never really received an assignment from God that I was qualified for. Maybe, maybe some of you parents can relate to this. 
Do you remember back to when your first baby was born and they handed you this child and you look down and if you're like me and just about every other parent I know, you thought, uh-oh, I'm in way over my head. And then, and then after a day in the hospital, the doctor comes in and says, yeah, you're good to go. You have a great life. And they actually send you away from the hospital. There's no nurses, no doctors, nobody who knows what they're doing. You're carrying this car seat going, how do I strap this into the car? I'm going to probably ruin this kid because I'm so not ready for this. You remember that feeling? <laughs> I remember the feeling when it became really, really clear to me that God was calling me to be a senior pastor. I knew for sure I was not qualified for that. I knew I was going to be in way over my head. And now, as a pastor, I face this season of COVID-19, and I don't have a clue how to do this. I've never been down a road like this before. I get together with the staff and the elders and we pray and we talk and we're seeking God and doing the best we can to figure this out. But the truth is I feel incredibly, incredibly inadequate to lead in a time and in a context and a situation that I've never done before. And all of you are dealing with the same thing in your jobs, in your families, in your, in your life situation right now. We're all forced into this thing that we know we don't know how to do. We're not qualified for this. But I keep learning over and over that no matter how much I think, if I was God, I'd be looking for the most qualified person. I've heard this saying said, and it's becoming more and more clear to me. God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called. God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called. So think about this. Let's just say you're the head coach of the Lakers, and it's the seventh game of the NBA Finals, and you're down by one point. There's 15 seconds left, and you call a timeout to figure out what you're going to do. Now, I'm asking you, who are you going to give the ball to? You're going to give the ball to LeBron James, the greatest player of his generation, or are you going to give the ball, look down to the end of the bench and find some rookie who's never played before and give him the ball with the whole season on the line? It's a no-brainer, right? You're going to give it to the most qualified person. Well, it seems like a no-brainer. <laughs> but God has a track record of looking down to the end of the bench and calling the guy that's there. He loves to reach out to the end of the bench and use someone who everyone knows is not qualified. Let me give you an example of that. Take your Bibles and open to the second book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. So when you start in the Bible, you're in Genesis. I want you to go to Exodus chapter 3, right after Genesis. And I want you to pick it up with me in verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not yet consumed. Okay, this is weird. First of all, you have to understand, Moses is already an old man. 
Uh, he, he grew up in Egypt, but because of the issues that took place in the first two chapters of Exodus, he ends up fleeing, and now he's just been a shepherd. For decades, he's been a shepherd. This is what he does. Every day he goes out with his staff in his hand, and he leads the sheep to the water. He leads them to the pastures, protects them, and takes care of sheep. That has been his assignment. That was, that's what he's been doing for four decades. He's just a regular guy a regular guy doing regular stuff he's 80 years old and his best days are definitely behind him he's had some chances and he blew it and now he finds himself in this situation pick it up in verse 3 so Moses said I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight why the bush is not burned up when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. I'll say this for Moses. He may have been old. He may have uh, had a humdrum life. But he was at least willing to be interrupted by God. I honestly think this is one of the biggest reasons that a lot of us are living humdrum lives instead of changing the world for God's glory. It's because we are so caught up in the day-to-day -day activities of our lives that we're not willing to be interrupted. There was a bush that was burning and it wasn't consumed. That caught his attention. What would God have to do to really get your attention? Some of you know the answer to that question from experience. Some of you know that you've sat in a doctor's office and heard him pronounce the word cancer about your life and God really had your attention. Some of you have gone through trials where you lost a job, ran out of money, didn't know what you were going to do and God really had your attention. Some of you have experienced unbelievable blessings from God. Some of you have seen God do the miraculous and God really had your attention. But most of the time, day by day, I'm afraid we're not giving God our attention. Moses was willing to be interrupted. See, we've got it all wrong. We think the things on our to-do list are the important things. And we don't want to get distracted. But sometimes it's our routine that distracts us from God. I wonder, how many burning bushes have I missed over the years? Because I've been so intent on less important stuff that I missed God. Well, let's see how this unfolds. Verse 5. And he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So first of all, he was willing to be interrupted. But when he was interrupted, he responded in reverence. Once he knew that it was God, he took his shoes off. He hid his face. He he had a reverent fear of God. What did we learn the last couple of weeks? God is looking for people who will worship him with all of their heart and spirit and truth. Sometimes I think we become too comfortable with God. 
Sometimes I think the fact that we realize Jesus is our friend has actually numbed us to the majesty of who he is. And we can easily forget that when we're dealing with God, we're dealing with the King of kings and Lord of lords. But the people God uses to change the world, those are people who worship him with their whole hearts. We're willing to be interrupted and we're willing to focus on God. So here comes the big assignment. Verse 7. The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, uh, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Don't miss that last verse. Look at verse 10 again. Therefore, come now, Moses. I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Let me put that in perspective for you. You're scrolling through your phone, you're just checking your Instagram, and all of a sudden the face of Jesus pops up on your phone. And it's not just the face of Jesus, he actually comes out of your phone and there's like a floating hologram of Jesus right in front of you and he calls you by name and he says, listen, I have an assignment for you. I'm going to send you to North Korea and your job is to overthrow the government and set all the people free from all of the corruption that they've been dealing with. <laughs> what would you do? I would say, hey, there's something wrong with my phone. Something's going on here. What is this all about? There's no way that God is going to choose me. I wouldn't even know the first thing to do. How am I going to get an audience with the leadership of North Korea? How am I going to come up with a plan? I have no power. I have nothing to bargain with. What am I supposed to do? How would you respond to an assignment from God like that? Watch how Moses responds. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? I think that's one of the biggest questions that keeps us from walking with God in victory. Who am I? Because there's a lot implied in that question. It's a rhetorical question. The answer in Moses' mind is, I am nobody. Who am I for such an incredible task? I am not qualified. I am not able. I don't know what to do. I mean, Lord, who do you think I am? You would think you would need some training and experience for an assignment like that. You would think maybe that you would need, you know, years of experience as a diplomat. Maybe you would need military training. You certainly would need an army to lead. Uh, or maybe... Maybe if you're going to do something great for God, maybe you're going to at least have to go to seminary first. You're going to have to somehow um, overcome those weaknesses that are so familiar to you. Not really. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Read your Bible. 
You're just going to come across example after example after example. Gideon, he's scared and cowering. God calls him to lead Israel to a new world of victory. David, little kid with a stone and a slingshot, and he is called to, to deliver Israel and become their king. Peter, he is known for just being impulsive, being arrogant, being full of himself, always putting his foot in his mouth. God was going to call him to lead the church into its greatness in the first century. In fact, when Peter and John were interrogated, this is Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are being interrogated because God had used them to heal somebody in the temple and it had caused quite a stir. And they're brought in and they're being interrogated. And here's the comment that they make about them. It says they observed, this is Acts 4.13, they observed that they were uneducated and untrained men, but recognized them as having been with Jesus. Man, that's become like a life verse to me. Uneducated, untrained, unqualified. And yet, they had been with Jesus. So Moses had some apprehension. He had some apprehension because of who he was, but really who he wasn't. But that wasn't his only problem. Look at verse 12. And he said, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to, your, to uh, the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of our fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say, What's his name? What shall I say to them? <laughs> so his first question is, Who am I? And his second question is, Hey God, who are you? I'm not even sure I know who you are. I'm not even sure that I trust you. Sometimes we don't step out in faith and obedience because we're not sure about God. And we struggle in our hearts. And guys, I want to tell you, it's okay to struggle in your heart. It's okay that there's doubt and there's disillusionment at times. And when God doesn't do the things you expect him to do and you wonder about that, that's okay. That's understandable. Just go to God and keep asking this question. Who are you? Who are you, God? Show yourself to me. Are you really powerful? Can I really trust you? Do you really have a plan for my life? Are you really going to protect me? So Moses is concerned about himself. And he's concerned about God. But look how God responds. Verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Man, I want to preach a six-week series on this, but I'm going to give you one minute, right? I am, the name of God. It's not I was. God is not a thing of the past. God is not a, a person who used his power in the past, but doesn't use his power today. He is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. His name is not I was. His name is not maybe I will become. God doesn't become anything. He is God, perfect in every way. I want you to remember who your God is. I am who I am right here, right now, presently with you. Here's a great thing about getting an assignment from God. God doesn't send us an assignments. 
God takes us on assignments. It's not about me and what I can accomplish and where I'm going and what I'm doing. He actually doesn't send me and then leave me to it. He takes me and gives me the privilege of getting to be with him while he does the amazing. When I was a kid, there was a show on TV called Mission Impossible. They made a bunch of movies out of it later. And, it, and in this show, it would always begin with, uh, with the guy getting a tape or some kind of recording or some sort of message that says, your mission, should you choose to accept it? And then it would give him some impossible scenario that he had to carry out. And then it said, and now you should know that if you get caught, we will disavow all knowledge of you. In other words, they're not going to be there for him. He's going on his own. My friends, that is not our God. He takes us with him. When God gives us an assignment, it's not about us. It's all about him. It's like your, your five-year-old son sees that you're about to mow the lawn and he says, Daddy, can I come help you mow the lawn? And if you're like me, your first thought is, oh my gosh, this is going to take forever. Because if your five-year-old is helping you, right, he's not helping, he's getting in the way. But if you could get his hands on the handle and your hands around his, and you could push with him, and, and you know, there's a chance he's going to get hurt, there's a good chance that the lawn is going to be a mess, there's a good chance your wife is not going to be happy with this decision. But if you want that special moment with your son, you do it with him. That's what God's doing with us. But watch how God responds to Moses' doubt and his fear. Um, if, you, if you go to chapter 4, verse 1, when Moses said, then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So first he wondered about himself, then he wondered about God. Now he's wondering about the people. He doesn't trust the people. But watch how God responds. Verse 2. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. That's all that Moses had to overthrow Pharaoh. A staff. Not a nuclear weapon, not a mighty army, a wooden stick. That was it. That's what he had. That's what Moses brought to the table. What do you have in your hand? I have a staff. So look what God does. Verse 3. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Here's what I don't want you to miss in this little moment. God tells them, throw it down, and it becomes a serpent, right? Now, you've seen this on TV, watch an animal planet or something, right? If you're picking up a poisonous snake, where do you pick it up? You don't grab it by the tail. You grab it right behind the head so it won't bite you. If you grab it by the tail, it will spin and bite you and you're dead. God says to him, pick it up. And he tells him how to pick it up. Pick it up by the tail. This is Moses' first great act of faith. This is his first great act of obedience. He picks it up just as God told him to. And it becomes a staff in his hand again. That's all he had, a staff, a wooden staff. 
But oh, did God use that staff. He called down the ten plagues with that staff. He parted the Red Sea with that staff. He struck the the rock and brought out water with that staff. He held it above his head as the Israelites battled the Amalekites and destroyed them with that staff. All Moses had was a staff. But when we give what we have, God does amazing things with it. One little boy brought his lunch to hear Jesus speak, and he fed thousands when he gave it to Jesus. There was a widow in Kings who was down to her last little bit of oil and her last little bit of flour. And she said, I'm just going to make a sandwich for my son, and then we're going to die. And God said, give it to me. And God used that oil and that grain to sustain the prophet and her family through an entire drought. Let me ask you a question. What's in your hand? What do you bring to the table? You have some skill with tools? God can use that to change the world if you're willing to entrust it to him. I have a perfect example. Our fixers ministry is just a bunch of guys who really know how to use tools. And God is using them to touch lives and change lives everywhere. What do you have in your hand? Do you have some education? Are you well educated? God can use that to touch and change lives. We have a tutoring ministry where we have people who are educated, well-educated and trained, who are teaching kids to read, and it's changing their lives and introducing them to Jesus. You have some money? God can use that money to finance a ministry that's going to change the world. Too often, we don't think of ourselves as qualified ministers, and we don't think we really have anything to offer that will change the world. But God has called you to ministry. And that calling is not about you. And it's not about those he's calling you to touch. It's all about him. The great I am. When I first came to Christ at the age of 14, I had this deep-seated sense in my heart that God had a great calling on my life that I was supposed to live a a magnificent life, that I was supposed to live a great life. And I never talked about it because to me, it just seemed like arrogance. I mean, I'm supposed to humble myself. I'm not supposed to think of myself as great, right? But then I started reading my Bible and the more I became familiar with the pages of scripture, the more I became familiar with God. You know what I realized? There are no great people in the Bible, just a great God. And therefore, I could be like Moses, I could be like Elijah, I could be like David, I could be like Peter. God is the one who's great. I have to be the one who's available. So again, I ask you, what's in your hand? And what are you willing to do to be used by God to change the world? I haven't seen a burning bush lately. That's okay. Keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes peeled because God is calling you to join him in what he's doing. Not he might call you, not who knows. God is calling you to join him in what he's doing. And if God can use Moses 
to change the world, God can use anybody. And if God can use anybody, he can use you and me because you know who you and me are? We're the church of Jesus Christ. He could use us to change the world. So I ask you that one last time. What's in your hand? Let's pray. God, we just want to thank you that the biggest thing that's in our hand is your hand. That we can hold on to you and we don't even have to grip because you're holding on to us. And we know, God, that your power can flow through us, but sometimes we get distracted, sometimes we doubt, sometimes we fear that maybe you're not who we thought you were, maybe we're not all that we need to be. God, help us to remember who you are. Help us to keep our eyes and our hearts focused on you and use us, God, as ministers. Use us to change the world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.